This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, well, it's very nice to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. And really, there are three coronaviruses that we have seen before, um, including this one, that causes severe disease. Usually, coronaviruses cause the common cold, upper respiratory tract infections, but there have been now three times in human history, this is clearly the worst, where we've had a coronavirus cause severe disease and lead to a pandemic. The first one was in 2003 with the SARS coronavirus. It was called SARS-CoV or SARS-CoV-1. And essentially, it was much more mild than this. It lasted about nine months. It did cause severe disease, like this COVID-19 does, um, but it, at which specifically it was named because it caused severe acute respiratory syndrome or severe pneumonia-like illness. But it only lasted about nine months in the world. It spanned from the end of 2002 to the beginning of two, uh, to, for somewhat of 2003. There were only 8,100 cases, 29 countries, 774 deaths, and it ended. There were only 29 cases in the U.S. and zero deaths. And the reason it ended is this was a particular virus that if you felt sick, that's when you could spread it. That's called syndromic surveillance. You knew who to isolate. The problem with the one that we have now is that before vaccines, even if you felt well, asymptomatic, you could still spread it. That wasn't true of SARS. This started from the horseshoe bat, as many of these dangerous coronaviruses do. It then went into a cat-like mammal called the palm civet, and it ended up coming into humans, and then it could lead to human-to-human transmission. The second time we saw this was with MERS, and this was in 2012. Actually, all cases were linked to the Middle East, and so it was called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. It went around the world, actually over the last next seven years, but there were very few cases, 2494 cases. In the United States, we only saw two cases of this, and they were from healthcare workers who had been in the Middle East. And its intermediary host from the bat was the camel, and then it went into humans. So what do we have now? This is obviously completely worse than this, uh, than any of those two, this new coronavirus. As you know, the COVID-19 coronavirus was actually reported from Wuhan, China, um, through a whistleblower event. So there was an ophthalmologist who called the World Health Organization and said, this has been going on and I need to tell you about it. And it really was a whistleblower event where he was describing fever, cough, and pneumonia, and it was a new syndrome. And he, um, uh, he did this on December 31st, 2019. Unfortunately, I will say that this particular ophthalmologist actually succumbed to COVID-19. By the time that this WHO was identified, um, they actually were able by January 7th to already tell it was a, what was called a coronavirus. Um, and by January 30th, the WHO declared a global health emergency. And on March 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization called this a pandemic, which meant that it was everywhere in the world. 
On March 26, 2020, the U.S. became the epicenter of the pandemic. And actually, it was the epicenter until we got vaccines out. And then really, since then, we've been having rising cases in different parts of the world. Um, March 5th was started the last wave that we saw was such a deadly wave in India. It's important for me to comment that um, even though we do think this is from bats, we have not found the intermediary host that went from bats to some sort of other animal host and into humans. And you're well aware by now that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is uh, being um, questioned and investigated because this is uh, an institute that it looked like, as revealed by the Wall Street Journal, that there was an outbreak of some severe infections in lab workers in early November. And so it looks like that this particular institute was working on this virus. Again, we don't know what they were doing. We don't know if they were working to um, make it able to be in humans, to have better function, or maybe they had, had, had um, gotten it from an animal. Again, this is all being investigated right now. And we do require transparency from the Chinese government around this, because if we had known about this earlier, we could have had a vaccine earlier. Speaking of vaccines, there are actually now nine vaccines that have been approved for COVID-19. And I think that's really important because it's a huge sort of advancement in medical science that March 11th, 2020 was the first time that this was declared a pandemic. And the first time we saw the release of information in a press release form of the first safe and effective vaccine was on November 9th. So it is quite amazing to me um, that it was such a short period of time that we developed these vaccines. And now we don't just have the two mRNA vaccines, which you hear a lot about and are uh, authorized in this country, which are shown on the top, which are the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, but we have one adenovirus DNA vaccine that's approved here in um, or actually authorized here in the United States. And then we have actually six vaccines that you may not have heard about as much because they're not authorized here in the United States, but they're very important for the rest of the world. And those are AstraZeneca, Novavax, the Sputnik V vaccine, the Sinovac vaccine, the Sinopharm, and the Bharat Covaxin product. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about these vaccines, but give you more of a focus of the ones that we use here in this country that are authorized by the FDA. So to take a step back how these vaccines were designed, it really is important to remember that the coronavirus attaches to the host cell with a sticking out piece of the coronavirus, which you've heard a lot about, called the spike protein. And that spike protein also involves another component, which is called the receptor binding domain. And that piece of protein is actually the focus of six of our nine coronavirus vaccines that we have. Um, they're the focus of the two mRNA vaccines that we have in this country, Pfizer and Moderna, and also the focus of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, and in fact, uh, just to show you that more clearly, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, really what they do is they take what's called mRNA, which is genetic material that you use in your body to actually code and make into the spike protein. And then when you make the spike protein in your body, then you raise an immune response against it. So the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are the mRNA vaccines that we have in this country. And they're an mRNA genetic material surrounded by a lipid layer. And those are injected. 
the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is a little bit of a different design. What it is, is the DNA genetic material that codes for the spike protein. And it's encased in a virus, a very benign virus called the adenovirus. And the adenovirus has inside of it the DNA. And then that adenovirus comes in, cannot replicate in your body, but it's a vector to bring in the DNA. Then the DNA in your body is made into mRNA. And then it's the same mechanism that I just told you, making the protein of the spike protein and raising an immune response. The three types of adenovirus DNA vectors that we have are the Johnson & Johnson, which we have in the United States, but also there's one called AstraZeneca, which is made out of Oxford in England, and there's one called Sputnik V, which is made in Russia. There are also three vaccines that are more traditional designs, which are whole inactivated variants, where they take the virus, they inactivate it, and then they put that kind of dead virus in uh, as a vaccine. That's a more common way to make a vaccine. And we have three of those. Those are the Sinovac, Sinopharm, and the Covaxin. And then finally, the Novavax vaccine is actually taking the spike protein itself, combining it with something called an adjuvant, and then putting that in the body. And these are the nine vaccines that we have. Now, the reason that I have to take a step back and explain the immune system to you um, a little bit is why it's going to become relevant, because I want to talk about the variants um, that get so much attention in the news about this virus. So the way that your immune response works, whether you have natural infection or you get a vaccine, is there's two different arms of the immune system that are stimulated in response to the vaccine or, or natural infection. One is B cells, which end up making antibodies. And antibodies will fight the virus, but actually T cells, which are also produced by these vaccines, and because we're in 2020, these vaccine trials all studied that T cell responses were induced by these vaccines. And it's really T cells that are the strongest um, and more, most durable arm of the immune system that will work against viruses for a long time. So T cells are divided into two kind of flavors, a CD4 cells, which are called helper cells, CD8 cells, which are called killer cells. And these act to fight the virus. And you get them both from natural infection and from the vaccine. The reason T cells are so important is that T cells actually prevent you from getting severe disease with coronavirus. Other studies prior to the vaccine showed us that if you mounted a good T cell response, you were more likely to get asymptomatic COVID than you were to get symptomatic COVID. So your T cells are very important to preventing you from actually getting severe disease, which is why it's so important that these vaccines do stimulate T cell immunity. So in the future, if there's ever, this virus is ever seen again, you are protected against severe disease. This is a very busy slide, but this actually explains to us that all of these clinical trials took the trouble when they were investigating the vaccines to measure T cell immunity for us. So there's the um, six vaccines that I list here. These are all involved the spike protein. Again, the Moderna and Pfizer are RNA vaccines, two doses. Johnson & Johnson is the adenovirus DNA one dose, and then the AstraZeneca, Novavax, and Sputnik are all two-dose regimens. They all, in what's called their phase one, two trials, when they were developing them, took the trouble, measured uh, T-cell responses. They all had very strong T-cell responses that were generated by these vaccines. And that's why when they put them in clinical trials, and here you can see these large clinical trials that were done, and column five, you can see how large the number of individuals that got the vaccine in about 
the same amount of individuals got a placebo shot or a salt shot. And you can see that six column is so important that in the clinical trials, there was 100% efficacy against preventing severe COVID-19. And that really is the prominent T-cell response induced by these viruses. That is very helpful because when you see about some of these different um, efficacy estimates, for example, the Johnson & Johnson against different variants, you will see that is more in line with mild disease. And so, and we'll talk about that with antibodies in a minute, but it is relieving to hear that all these vaccines, you don't usually get 100% coming out of a clinical trial, uh, prevented severe disease. All the people who had COVID-19 hospitalizations or death received the SALT shot. This is actually true of the three inactivated virion vaccine candidates as well that we don't have or use in this country but they are important in the global stage. And those are the Sinopharm, the Sinovac, and the Covaxin, which is produced in India. They are maybe not as good good of vaccines as those spike protein vaccines, especially the Chinese-made products. But the good thing about them is they do prevent severe disease. Again, 100% in the clinical trials. So while we're rolling those out globally and China is making these available, Maybe people will need an mRNA vaccine in the future, but it is important to relieve relieve severe disease right now and hospitalizations given the waves of infection that are occurring across the world. There have actually been more deaths reported from COVID-19 in 2021 in the short period of the six months that we've had of 2021 than there was in all of 2020. And that really has to do with the waves coming into low and middle income countries like India and now entering Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. To go back to the vaccines that we have in this country, um, the two mRNA vaccines, uh, the, the clinical trial data, I already told you looked really good, but it's important to remember, I think, how they were designed. The Pfizer is two shots, 30 micrograms, three weeks apart. The Moderna is two shots, 100 micrograms, four weeks apart. And the trials, when they actually studied these products, were good about at least trying to enroll as much diversity of participants as they could get. And what I mean by that, at least the Moderna was 36.5% participants of color, um, and in the uh, Pfizer uh, campaign, it was 28% uh, Hispanic or Latinx. There was an attempt to get older individuals, 20 or 25% were over 65 years old. And in the clinical trials, there were risk factors for getting severe illness, like concomitant obesity or diabetes or pulmonary disease. Again, there was incredibly high efficacy in both of these trials. It was 94 to 95% in both of these trials of the vaccine preventing you from getting any symptoms of COVID-19 and all of the severe diseases were in those who got the salt shot. So really, really impressive uh, efficacy results. The Johnson & Johnson also enrolled a large patient population, but it was more diverse. They enrolled across the United States, Central and South America, and South Africa, 59% white, 45% Latinx, 17.2% African or American or African and 9% Native American. And there was 41% risk factors for getting severe illness. Again, all of the severe disease from COVID-19 occurred in those who got the salt shot. No one who got uh, the vaccine were hospitalized, but there was more variability across the variants, um, including the South Africa variant, which was called B1351. It's now called the beta variant. 
and the uh, P1 variant, which is called now the gamma variant, there was good efficacy for severe disease, but more variability against more mild disease with the coronavirus. And I'll explain that more when we get uh, later in the talk. The AstraZeneca vaccine that's out of Oxford, which we don't actually have in this country, looks really good and has been a profoundly important vaccine for the UK, for Europe, and actually specifically for India. I won't dwell on this here because we're concentrating on the ones in the United States. And I want to go back to immunology for a minute and explain to you why this protection against severe disease occurs. Really what vaccines do or what natural infection does is create a variety of different T cells that line up across the spike protein. There's anywhere from 100, probably from 87 to 150 T cells that you get from a vaccine response that are lined up in different little pieces of the spike protein. And the reason it's so important to tell you that is that's why variants which may have 13 mutations across the spike protein or eight mutations cannot actually evade the T cell response because T cells line up against so many parts of the spike protein, at least a hundred. And there's been many, many studies that have shown us this, but a lot of these studies are actually coming out of both UCSF immunology laboratories and uh, the Scripps, um, uh, sorry, the La Jolla Immunology Institute in San Diego. This shows uh, from that same institute that uh, even against the variants, if you get the mRNA vaccines and then examine your blood uh, in a test tube, that's what they did against different variants of the virus, including the alpha, beta, gamma variants, your T cell reactivity was completely unfazed by any variation or variants lung spike protein. And so that's important for the idea that a vaccine will protect you into the future against severe disease. This is true of AstraZeneca as well. And um, the reason that's important is AstraZeneca is really a vaccine that's being used worldwide. And just a single dose of AstraZeneca and vaccine in the UK reduced hospitalizations by 90%. Um, and it's, it, this was true in India in the recent wave, even with the so-called Delta variant, which I'll describe a little bit more, just one dose protected against severe disease, though two doses are better for the Delta variant. There are some rare side effects of these vaccines. There is very rare clotting side effect that can occur with either the Johnson & Johnson or the AstraZeneca vaccine. This actually has to do with either the adenovirus or the DNA inside. Uh, there has been reports on this. There's about a one in a million incident in the United States seven in one million if you're a woman under 50. The CDC decided to put, a, uh, FDA decided to put a warning on it, but certainly didn't stop uh, the rollout of the Johnson Johnson because COVID-19 is so much more prevalent than one in a million. Um, but this is something to watch out for. And then I don't actually have a slide on this here, but you've heard about the mRNA vaccines in younger children or actually younger individuals giving rare causes, cases of myocarditis or inflammation of the heart. And there's going to be a meeting this Friday, June 18th um, of the American College of um, Immunization Practices to look at those rare side effects in young people, usually male and usually after the second dose of vaccine. 
The Novavax vaccine, I will only mention to you because the results were just came out yesterday. And I do think this is going to be an important vaccine for the world. Remember, this is a protein combined with what's called an adjuvant, and it's injected in two doses. And this was the PREVENT-19 trial. The results um, out of uh, 113 sites across the U.S. and Mexico, across about 26,000 participants, were just released on June 14th. And the reason it's important is it showed 90.4% overall efficacy, but again, that familiar now 100% protection against uh, severe disease, even moderate disease with this vaccine. And importantly, because this was the latest vaccine trial that was done, they were able to sequence variants, sequence the different variants of concern. And this vaccine was equally effective, 93% against all variants of concern. So that's important because it really speaks to the T-cell response generated by all of these vaccines. In terms of the next question, which are, do vaccines decrease transmission? The short answer is yes. And what I mean by transmission is the Achilles heel of this particular virus is that people could be asymptomatic and still pass it on to others. It's why it spreads so quickly. And it's why we have um, this worldwide pandemic that's so hard to control. Really, um, what vaccines do is block the ability of you to even have asymptomatic infection in your nose. There's been many studies now um, across a variety of settings. The the largest one is from the Israeli um, vaccine campaign that shows that if you swab people after they've had the vaccine, it's very unlikely about 92% reduction in the ability to even have asymptomatic infection in your nose. And it was really this data put together with the vaccine effectiveness data that I'm going to tell you about in the next slides that led the CDC to say, yeah, you really don't have to mask or wear a mask after vaccine because you are protecting other people through taking the vaccine. The other important part of the vaccines is what I just told you is really relevant to the clinical trials, but those were performed mainly for the mRNA vaccines and published in December. And really our real world effectiveness data, how the vaccines are working in the real world is really phenomenal. Um, This is nursing home residents across the United States. They were first to be prioritized for vaccination as well as healthcare workers. And there was a very rapid descent among any cases or severe disease in nursing homes really plummeting such that nursing homes are very safe places now with the context of mass vaccination. This is a study among healthcare workers uh, across the United States. This was specifically in LA and San Diego and Texas. And uh, this was performed between December and February. And even when there was a lot of circulating virus in the community, there were still very few people who after the vaccine got COVID-19. And some of them were just asymptomatic in their nose, and it could have been an asymptomatic case that couldn't transmit because the viral load was very low. They didn't test for it. So to put it simply, if you weren't vaccinated at that time in this country, 26 out of 1,000 were infected with COVID. If you were vaccinated, only 0.5 out of 1,000. Same um, was shown in a big study across the United States published by the CDC across healthcare workers, frontline workers in uh, the U.S. And this was again from December to March when we had higher rates of circulating virus than we do now. We're at the lowest point that we've ever had of cases in the United States. 
here now is of June 15th, but this is when circulating cases were higher. And again, to put it very simply, the effectiveness of the vaccine was incredible. Out of a thousand who were unvaccinated, there were 161 COVID infections. And out of those who were vaccinated, only one out of a thousand, and many of those were asymptomatic and they were detected on routine swabs in this population. Uh, this has been shown again and again. This is a healthcare worker study again, Florida, Minnesota, Arizona. This is in the Mayo Clinic uh, system. And the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were even more effective than they were in the, in the clinical trials at about 97 and 99% um, uh, for getting any disease uh, among healthcare workers across the Mayo Clinic system. This is a nice study because it really looks at older individuals. This is a CDC study that was published uh, of those who are older than 65 in this country. And um, the, the vaccine uh, administration, because elder patients um, were actually um, prioritized for vaccines, the uh, admissions dropped by 94% uh, after the second dose. So it really shows this decreased um, and profound decrease really in severe illness in real time, even at a time where there was more virus circulating in the United States than there is now. And then this finally is a very big study of the general population of Israel. And this really shows the real world effectiveness of the vaccines, even when there was circulating variant, in this case, it was the alpha variant. Um, but the Pfizer vaccine was 95% effective against symptomatic COVID, 98% effective against hospitalizations or death. And despite full opening, the cases have continued to be very low in Israel, and actually yesterday, they released all COVID-19 restrictions completely, including masks for the entire population, um, even though they're at about a 61% first dose across the entire population. That's, of course, higher among those who are eligible. And uh, we're at about a 53% first dose here in the United States across the entire population, including those who are ineligible. And then finally, the CDC does track breakthrough infections, and they're very rare. Um, out of 135 million Americans who are fully vaccinated against COVID, there has only been very few people who break through and actually get hospitalized with COVID-19. It's a 0.001% chance. And to die from COVID-19 after you've had the vaccine is even rarer still. And it's about a one in a million. So these breakthrough infections that the CDC asked to track just severe infections are extremely rare in the context of mass vaccination in the United States. And then I will also just remind you that I know that there's a lot of talk about boosters, but really going back to that diagram that I showed you, the immune system, there are B cells and there are T cells, and there are also what we call memory B cells and memory T cells. And it does look like, and this is really important, that the vaccines, and actually natural infection, produce memory B cells. And the reason that's so important is memory B cells stay in the bank. They actually are in your bone marrow biopsy. They stay in your lymph nodes. There was a study that showed that people with natural infection, if they biopsied their um, bone marrows, they could see memory B cells. And the reason memory B cells are so important is they last a very long time and they can produce antibodies in response if they see the virus again. For example, there was a study from the 1918 influenza pandemic, which was published in 2008, where they took 90-year-olds to 101-year-olds, and they took this group of individuals who had seen the 1918 virus, and they saw that they still had memory B cells in their bloodstream 
that responded to that original virus that they had seen when they were three years old. And in fact, they could stimulate those memory B cells to produce antibodies 90 years later to the influenza virus of 1918. So memory B cells last a very long time and the vaccines do induce memory B cells. Um, also memory T cells last a very long time and the vaccines induce memory T cells. For example, the SARS-CoV pandemic that I told you about in 2003 still show us that survivors of the SARS pandemic from 2003, this is now 2021, have strong T cell immunity against that original virus. And then I wanna kind of end up here with telling you about what herd immunity means because what we, the reason that we talk about herd immunity so much is because we are reaching it or what does it take to reach it? So remember that herd immunity does not actually mean that uh, you eradicate the virus. And in fact, we have herd immunity to measles, but we have not eradicated measles off the face of the earth. The only virus that has ever been eradicated off the face of the earth is smallpox. Um, and otherwise, there are many viruses that we live with if we have effective vaccines. What herd immunity means is that enough of us get the vaccine or enough of us get naturally infected that we protect others by our immunity, even if they don't get vaccinated, like children, for example, right now, because we don't have an approved vaccine for children. So it really is all these white sheep before in a field getting more and more immune, and they turn pink. And then what that means is that the white sheep, we can call these children who haven't gotten vaccinated yet, are unlikely uh, to encounter the virus because um, there's so much immunity or pink sheep around them. And so that's really what herd immunity means. And Israel de has decided they have reached herd immunity at the 61% first dose. And that's why they eased all, they st actually stopped all their COVID restrictions just yesterday on June 14th. Just to remind you about the variants, they've been gone through various names. They started out with the places that they were found. Then they went to very complicated numbering systems. And now the four variants are really the, uh, these are what are called the variants of concern, are the alpha variant, which was the um, one that used to be called B117, the beta variant, which is the B1351, the gamma variant, which was in Brazil first, that's the P1 variant, and finally the delta variant, which is the B1612, and that was first seen in India. The reason it's important to think about the delta variant is that two things come to mind. One is that people do need two doses of their mRNA vaccine or the, or the Johnson Johnson, just one dose to really cover them with the Delta variant, but they, there is no evidence that the Delta variant breaks through the vaccines and it's likely more transmissible, but it's not vaccine resistant. And I think that's very important um, with all the media coverage right now that we just explained T cell immunity and really the Delta variant uh, will always be covered by your T cell immunity. So just to allow us to have lots of time uh, for questions, because I do recognize that there's lots going on in the world. There's lots changing. There's the origin of the virus. There is vaccines. There's herd immunity. Today's June 15th. This is the date that California opened up. And so I do wanna be able to answer your questions. Um, but just to summarize that vaccine trials show amazing efficacy and safety and all vaccines reduce severe disease significantly, likely due to our T cell responses. Vaccines do decrease transmission and the real world effectiveness is even better than efficacy, which efficacy was what we saw in the clinical trials. 
real world effectiveness is what we're seeing as we roll out the vaccine in real life. Variants can be managed, at least the best part of them is that they do not evade the vaccine, but it does mean that we have to vaccinate faster our younger individuals who are still some holding out or haven't yet vaccinated, or if we have vaccine hesitancy in this country to to help with um, techniques to help people take the vaccine. Even the um, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, the adenovirus vaccines are very effective and there are rare safety concerns of these vaccines. They're rare, but they're important to mention so that people can be alert. And I'll actually end there and we can open it up to questions. Thank you, Monica. A round of applause. We really appreciate that. So you, can you see the Q&A or would you like me to uh, feed them to you? I do see the Q&A and um, also I see the chat questions as well. And um, I agree that the outbreak was not proven in the um, Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, uh, This is the Wall Street Journal reported this, but Dr. Xi came out today and spoke about this. Um, And um, I think that, again, there is a very active World Health Organization-led process to investigate the origins of the vaccine. And I think it's important. The one thing that I can say is if we knew about it earlier, the only thing I would say, because I don't think anyone created this virus, I don't think you can create a virus. You can make it stronger. You can do other things, but you can't create a virus. This came from bats. Um, But the important thing is the earlier we know about a virus in the future, we can develop a vaccine. So, um, So there are lots of questions that have come up here. Can those with compromised immune systems from diseases like chronic leukemia develop the needed memory B cells and T cells post-vaccination? That's an excellent question. And um, the interesting thing is we're just evolving that data, meaning people are immunocompromised. Again, the paper will tell you, the newspaper, the media will say, oh, you'll get no immune response to the vaccines at all. That isn't true. That actually is really being shown in careful study that even if your antibody response is reduced by chemotherapy, for example, or other immunocompromising conditions, that there will still be um, the development of T-cell immunity. Or if you have a B-cell agent that you're taking, um, T-cells will come up. If you have a T-cell agent that you're taking, B-cells could come up. So the redundancy and complexity and the in-breath response of our immune system is really been realized through this COVID pandemic. I think we realized this before with HIV, but I think it's really being appreciated now. And we don't know <clears throat> if, um, if you won't get an, uh, a good immune response. There was a study yesterday however, that showed if you don't get a good antibody response, there was this group that gave a third vaccine in those who are immunocompromised, and that did boost the antibody response. And there's two large large NIH studies going on right now to ask that very question. Do you need to boost the mRNA vaccine with another vaccine, with one more vaccine uh, booster if you're immunocompromised? And all of that data is going to come out soon when we get the results of this study. Um, There's another question, which is immunity boosted with exposure to the virus. Yes, that is true. Like if you are exposed to the virus, it will actually trigger your memory B cells to produce antibodies. And importantly, 
they actually will produce antibodies that are directed against that variant. The memory B cells are dormant. They're not committed to a certain type of antibody. And if you see a Delta variant, those memory B cells will produce antibodies that can work across that variant. Um, same thing with the T cells. So being exposed to the virus afterwards will of course trigger uh, 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 your immune response that you've gotten for the vaccines to be active and work. Uh, both adenovirus um, two and, and five have been studied in the laboratory where laboratory work has shown any cross-reactivity to these new vaccines. So the question is here uh, <clears throat> that there's adenovirus vectors that, uh, that surround the DNA in the Sputnik V, in the AstraZeneca, and in the Johnson Johnson vaccine. And the question is, are laboratory workers who are exposed to, to those adenovirus vectors, um, were they exposed and thus um, they would have antibodies, for example, to these vectors? And then would they, uh, when you deliver a vaccine with that adenovirus, would they uh, show a cross-reactivity? Would they um, induce more immune response against those adenoviruses? I think that's a very good question. It would depend on, obviously, vaccine, sorry, um, uh, basic science, uh, um, laboratory safety or BSL-2 safety. Um, laboratory workers are not supposed to be um, uh, exposed to any, vac uh, any virus when they're working with live virus in the laboratory. And these adenoviruses are supposed to be, and I say supposed to because there was one batch um, with the Sputnik V that there was one batch that was replication competent, but luckily we haven't seen it since. But these adenoviruses are supposed to be replication incompetent, meaning they can't cause colds in you, or um, they were also from chimps, uh, they can cause colds in chimps, they shouldn't cause any symptoms in you if they're replication incompetent. So I would hope that laboratory workers aren't actually getting adenovirus, um, even mild colds from these in the laboratory. If a person dies of COVID-19, are they still contagious? No, um, though that's a sad question that you raise because there have been, um, and we continue to do this, and this is happening in India, um, an inability to have the uh, to have uh, witness cremations or or sort of have funerals that are um, that are uh, attended, and I think that's one of our sad sort of um, residue of this pandemic. A a it's a very morbid question actually, but but a dead body is not able to, of course. Um, breathe out the, the the virus or or pass on the virus. It is a respiratory virus. It needs it requires live particles to come from one person to the next, um, surrounded by saliva, for example. Um, and it, it really can't be gotten from someone who's died of COVID, which I think is important when we think about um, laying rest uh, people. Um, if we could go back. In time, knowing what we do now, would there have been any logic to somehow vaccinating populations to create pre-immunization status for the, these families of viruses we know have pandemic potential? It's a very, it's an excellent question. Um, it's true, there's no way to get around it, that the two pandemic viruses have been influenza viruses, which are RNA viruses, and now with this worst one ever, coronaviruses. Um, and coronaviruses are also RNA viruses. And so the question had been, the question would be, could we have vaccinated with a with a related virus, for example, um, or a, a piece of protein from a related virus to make our bodies more immune to uh, coronaviruses? It's a very good question. It's actually an excellent question. I don't think there's 
any doubt from now on that we're not going to be doing two things to prevent coronavirus pandemics. One is addressing the un, un, inhumane treatment of animals. I, I, I think there is no doubt that, that uh, bats you know, and, and animals be in close contact that are usually not supposed to be in, in close contact. And there was just a nature paper last week about the wet markets um, really isn't good for viral viral transfer. So one thing that should come out of this is, is sort of avoiding any exposure to, to viruses being able to pass from one animal to another by putting animals that shouldn't be put together in close quarters. The second is, um, I think it's a very good question. There's something called a universal vaccine uh, they call it vaccine to end them all, <laughs> um, which uh, are being designed. There was a Scientific American um, uh, report on this last week where you will take a very conserved part of a virus, not the spike protein, because spike proteins can change with coronavirus, but a very conserved part internal to the virus and make a vaccine to that so that we would be more resistant to any other coronavirus that comes our way. Same thing is true of the influenza vaccine. We're looking to... Um, make a global influenza vaccine, which wouldn't require uh, vaccine shots every year because the two, which are spike proteins on the surface of influenza, the H and the N, you have to vary every year and uh, make a new vaccine every year. So it's, I think it's a very good question. And um, I think it, this, this pandemic is going to lead to all sorts of advancements, like what you just said. Uh, does ivermectin protect against infection? Would it be safe for an unvaccinated person who takes ivermectin to spend a week or two with an elderly vaccinated relative. You know, vaccinated relatives who are elderly are very safe in the sense that what that uh, CDC study showed us and what I didn't tell you about the Israeli study uh, that was in Lancet is that they did look at immune responses in very, uh, in much older people. For example, the Israeli study went up to 75 year olds, 85 year olds and had really good immune responses. So an elderly vaccinated relative is really very safe. Um, ivermectin, you know, there was some preliminary data, and this was, again, in, in not phase three clinical studies that looked promising. Ivermectin is a, um, is a anti-worm agent, essentially, an anti-helminth agent. But unfortunately, the efficacy of this has not, phased, uh, has not panned out in um, phase three trials. And so we don't think ivermectin is an effective strategy to treat COVID-19. There are many countries who are still giving it in the principle of sort of how could it do harm? And uh, unlike hydroxychloroquine, who actually had some side effects and could do harm, um, do something with the heart and, and creating arrhythmias, ivermectin doesn't have side effects like that. But, um, but frankly, uh, it has not been shown to be effective, very unfortunately, because it'd be nice to have a very clear treatment for COVID-19 that isn't intravenous. Um, based on their approaches to the pandemic, which countries might be high on your list of safest places to travel first? The UK and Israel, um, the UK certainly because it, it has an incredible vaccination rate because they chose a first dose first strategy. So you may hear about increased cases in the UK, but there's no increased hospitalizations. They're doing a lot of testing and it's a very safe place to travel. But I also think Europe is a very safe place to travel. And in fact, um, Europe, after a, quite a sluggish start, there was some EU, UK issues going on with the AstraZeneca vaccine. The EU had not purchased enough vaccines for the population. There was just things that led to a slow start. The, uh, basically, across the European Union, things are going very well. And I think people deserve a vacation after what we've been through. And I would encourage European travel. Unfortunately, I cannot recommend India-based travel. I can't recommend Russia-based travel. Um, 
and I can't uh, recommend Latin America or some swaths of Latin America, which are still having high rates. And then now we're starting to see in Malawi and Tanzania and other sub-Saharan African countries increased infections. Taiwan, um, unfortunately, as well, increased infections. Thailand, Japan will always come up because of the Olympics. And I will say one thing is that Japan's not letting in people in anyway. They're trying to maintain keeping the Olympics going by just letting in the athletes. So it's not anywhere you can travel. Australia and New Zealand have very low cases of COVID, but their travel policies are quite stringent because they have not um, done yet a great job with vaccinating their, their people. So I'd say Europe for right now. Um, given our immunity mechanism with two people who are immunized, one with no exposure to any COVID virus and the other, say, a healthcare worker with more exposure to variants have differing protection. Would the healthcare worker have more protection or less? It's an excellent question. The healthcare worker is more likely to get a um, breakthrough infection, even though those are extremely rare, um, because they're more likely to be exposed. On the other hand, the effectiveness of the vaccines have been incredible, even in the face of way higher circulating rates of virus than we have now. There was a Wall Street Journal article yesterday that shows that across the tests in the United States, there's 677,000 tests being done a day. There's less than a 2% test positivity. We have lowest amounts of circulating virus that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic, since before the pandemic. And so because of that, no one is as exposed anymore, but a healthcare worker would be more likely. Um, I, I understand the question because you're saying when that prime your immune system and you, you'd get a stronger response. Well, you may get a stronger response, but you're still susceptible um, to have a very rare breakthrough infection if you're exposed. But again, those rare, rare breakthrough infections really wanted to stress the CDC data, one in a million. Can you please talk a bit more about the speculated less real life protection with adenovirus vaccines like in Chile? So um, I don't actually think, I think that the Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines, which were also rolled out in Chile and Brazil and Nepal and other countries, they, they have less effectiveness. They have less effectiveness against transmission or more mild forms of the disease. And even though Sinovac and Sinopharm have both been approved by the WHO, and the reason that they're so important right now is um, as we're working out uh, donations from rich countries of mRNA vaccines to the rest of the world, frankly, uh, Sinovac and Sinopharm have been providing a lot of vaccine to places in dire need like Nepal. And those provide less real-life protection. The adenovirus vectors, which would be more AstraZeneca, even though Sputnik V is, is also um, providing uh, areas of Latin America and also Nepal, uh, there was a speculation that there's less real-life protection. I think that they, when you have a lot of circulating virus, you're more likely to have breakthroughs. And so this happened in India. It's not like the Covishield, which Covishield is the name for AstraZeneca in India and Covaxin is the part of the pharmaceutical product. It's not like these vaccines don't work. But when you're overwhelmed by high inoculum, when there's so much circulating virus, you can have more breakthroughs. It's why we have very few breakthroughs in this country with our reducing cases and um, why um, uh, 
why India had more breakthrough infections after AstraZeneca. So there's multiple things going on, but I don't actually think it speaks to the effectiveness of the vaccines. For example, the Scotland real world data in the UK and Wales and Scotland and UK um, showed incredible effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine in a place where there was not as much circulating virus, which was the UK. If we are vaccinated, can we donate blood to those unvaccinated to make them fight COVID-19? Convalescent plasma, which actually we didn't do after vaccination, but we did after people had, had, had natural infection, had mixed results. It wasn't amazing. And there are so much better ways to make people fight COVID-19 that giving blood is likely um, more of a kind of um, non-specific way. And the way that we're um, uh, the way to help people who are unvaccinated fight COVID-19 is really one of four strategies. One is remdesivir, which is a antiviral that we have. One is giving steroids if they have severe disease. One is giving tocolizumab, which is another anti-inflammatory. And the fourth strategy is a monoclonal antibody that you can give them as opposed to the more non-specific donating blood. How much difference do you think it made to have 50 U.S. states all responding separately to the pandemic? Yes. Um, thinking of spring break in Florida and Sturgis, South Dakota, is it that because so many of these infected traveled back to another state spreading out the impact? You know, oh, and then the important thing about this question is some like, some seems like some states acted more casually and still avoided the levels of outbreak we fear. Yes, we are 50 individual states. We all responded differently. It's like having 50 different countries. And unfortunately, um, even though we'd like to say that uh, some responses worked and others didn't, it's not that clear cut. Um, California had the most stringent lockdowns of um, all 50 states. And unfortunately, they were they are smack in the middle of um, hospitalizations and deaths uh, from the pandemic. Uh, Florida and Texas had much more open responses and Texas, especially I'd compare Texas more to California had pretty much the same. So it isn't as simple as closing down. It isn't as simple as mass mandates. It is human behavior. It is the fact that this pandemic went on for much longer than we thought. It's the fact that people had to do essential work um, it's the fact that we didn't really protect indoor spaces, which is where the most of the spread occurred with ventilation and with good masking. And instead, we closed down outdoor spaces, which never made sense with this virus, which drove people inside. We're going to have to do a referendum on our response um, because we responded separately and it's not as clear cut as lockdowns, mass distancing. It, what would have been the best thing to do for this virus is indoor spaces are the most risky. Closed indoor spaces without ventilation are even more risky. It's about ventilation. It's about good fit and filtered masks. We didn't even use the right masks inside. Um, inside. And it's about, frankly, allowing people off valves for socialization, which would include a lot of outside time um, for them to be around each other. So I cannot say... I cannot say that one state followed the science and the other didn't. It's way more complicated than that, in my opinion. Aside from getting more people vaccinated, if you could wave a magic wand, what other public health policy would you institute? My magic wand would be that we never would have done this with schools. Um, we closed schools, taking a, a page out of um, an in, a pandemic uh, book 
that didn't apply to COVID-19. And what I mean by that is COVID-19, we don't know all the reasons why, but it spares children um, much more than it spares adults. It is just something that gets more and more severe with, with age. Children are 3,000 times less likely to get severe disease than adults. And because of that, with these mitigation techniques, mass distancing ventilation for teachers uh, to keep them safe, we could have kept our schools open for longer. And what we're seeing now, and CDC just published data last Thursday about the mental health effects in kids of keeping children away from each other. I think the simplest aphorism I've heard throughout the entire pandemic is kids need kids. And breaking down their social structures, breaking down schools, not having school sports, not having socialization, uh, led the CDC to report that there are such alarming increases in suicidal ideation among teens. It's about a 50% increase this time last year, or, or overall 2020 compared to 2019, more prominent in adolescent girls. So um, that's what I would have waved my wand. And that wand was waved in Europe and the UK. They just decided and just worked harder on keeping schools open. Can you advise how you are talking about the excellent real life effects of vaccines and easing restrictions of people who still very strongly about wearing masks and forcing others to wear masks or feel very offended if they didn't? Um, so with people, oh, so there are many people who feel very strongly about masks. I agree. I actually wrote seven papers about the benefits of masking in the COVID pandemic, including one um, in early April last year, 2020, about universal masking of the American public. However, these real world, these vaccines are so much more effective than uh, masks, both to protect others because you don't spread it and also to protect you. And, um, and the way that I see the mass debate going on right now, and I think it's happening more in California, is that we just have to have compassion with each other. But to mandate people to wear masks um, when they're vaccinated is frankly not following the science and, and really isn't. And, um, you know, the CDC is a very conservative organization and uh, they would not have unmasked people <laughs> on May 13th after vaccination. So I do know people feel very strongly and I'm someone who's really deeply thought about masks and really deeply thought about the, the protective protection of um, uh, vaccines and immunity is head and shoulders above the protective uh, effects of masks. So um, I think it's gonna take a while for people not to be offended by each other because it became sort of a political statement to wear masks. Um, and I think it may be more, it may take us longer in California to not be offended by each other. Um, but I feel strongly that my vaccine protects me, my vaccine protects others. And I also would like to see people's faces and I'm, I'm planning on unmasking in public. Uh, if if allowed, even though, by the way, I think masks would prevent colds and flu, but um, we're not yet into those seasons. But I think that is true. Do you think that by isolating for the past year, we could have weakened our overall immunity to other pathogens? Well, that this actually leads to the answer that I just said, um, which is why I am not going to mask, um, though other infectious disease doctors will choose to mask during the cold and flu season. Um, there is no doubt that it has been shown again and again that colds or exposure to mild pathogens uh, does increase what's called your microbiome diversity. Your microbiome is your immunologic diversity in your body and also your 
exposure, basically the bugs or the germs that you carry around in your body. And it's important to be exposed uh, to other pathogens. I know that's hard to hear coming off a pandemic, um, but in any sort of ecologic experiment, places that are very clean, that avoid um, colds and, 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 and um, you know, children who get exposed to colds, for example, or children who don't go to daycare, there's more allergies, there's more autoimmune diseases, and there's unfortunately higher rates of cancer. And there's a condition called the, uh, sorry, there's a center called the NIH Microbiome Project that really examines this in detail. So do I think that we need exposure to some pathogens, hopefully mild, certainly not SARS-CoV-2? I do. I do think that as a, as a infectious disease doctor and as someone who thinks about immunology. And it's why I personally won't be masking in public to avoid a cold in the winter. But I know many um, infectious disease doctors uh, in the news and um, will say that they will want to avoid colds. Um, in terms of the obsessive use of hand sanitizer, I have even more concern about that because there's been there's a very nice study about a month and a half ago that shows that we're going to create antimicrobial resistance with some of our bacteria if we use these hand sanitizers like this. So this was never the right thing to do in the sense that there hasn't been a study yet that shows all this hand sanitizer, you know, helped the situation with COVID. It's really a respiratory virus. So I agree with you. Um, I agree with the person who just asked that. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I think this is a really important question. Given the findings is our clinical reason why we would mandate patients who are vaccinated to do PCR COVID test. No. And in fact, the CDC says, please don't do this. And I agree with them. They say that after you're vaccinated and you're asymptomatic, don't test people randomly in their nose. Not only are you using healthcare worker dollars, um, it's even if they have a little bit of virus in their nose, it's likely that their um, that viral load is very low because they may have seen it in the environment, but they fight it in their nose with their vaccination. And the fact that we're still continuing PCR COVID testing before procedures in our hospital systems, um, I don't think it's the right approach. I'm speaking as a UCSF doctor, and I think we should stop. Um, uh, I think that there are negative impacts in the sense that can really cause people anxiety. And it's, again, not CDC recommended. So at some point, we do need to go towards the movement that the CDC recommends, which I agree with, is to test people who are symptomatic, but don't test people like we used to before the vaccines prior to procedures to make sure that we're safe as healthcare workers. Everyone is still masking during procedures. I recognize that I'm still masking going to the hospital every day. Even if I'm not seeing patients, I have to mask around my colleagues, even though we've all been fully vaccinated since July. Uh, excuse me, January, because we got the vaccine first. I hope that Kalosha rules will, will apply to us because I again do think that there is something, there's been many studies in the surgical literature that show that patients would like to see their um, doctor's faces. And I, as a medical doctor, for example, would like to see my patient's faces and have them see me. So I think we're coming off a pandemic. We're still figuring it all out. Actually, give me a talk for the Infectious Disease Society of America in a month. And I'm going to recommend against universal masking and hospitals if you're doing a casual thing that you don't need a mask for, just because I think there is importance of seeing each other's faces. So you may not hear that from everyone, but that's how I believe. Fantastic. Thank you. I think everyone Thanks. feels a little bit better after that talk. So, <laughs> thank, you. thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.